At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payments from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelites owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites, who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, take an owl and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand, and the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn male of your herds and flocks. Do not put the firstborn of your cows to work, and do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You are to eat it in your own towns. Both, both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. But you must not eat the blood or pour it on the ground like water. Word of the Lord. The kids are invited to kids' church or outside with Kelly. This is our 12th sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, um, and this is this time where we sort of um, are moving towards the end. Uh, we've got next Sunday, and then one more Sunday, and then we'll, we're going to move into sort of the Sermon on the Mount in, in uh, September. 
Um, and one of the things that um, I wanted to, to do this Sunday was, the first was what I wanted to do was cover all of 12 to 25. And I just realized that that was impossible, like midday Saturday. Um, so I gave up. And so we're just doing 15 today, um, which should, in theory, lead to a little bit of a shorter sermon. Um, but one of the things that reading that Brian read for us from the book of Matthew were, I mean, Jesus in that, in that, that section there almost sounds like Moses. Um, he doesn't know who Pharisees are yet, but in some sense that this law you're to listen to. And Jesus is saying to his disciples as they're gathered to him at the foot of a mountain, the same way that the Israelites are gathered to Moses at the foot of the mountain, that you are to keep these laws and commands. And what Jesus says is that he's not come to abolish any of them, but to fulfill them. And every summer when we've preached through these, these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is not how they're spelled up there in Hebrew, they're called by their first, uh, the first words of each book, um, and they're actually from right to left, if you're familiar with Hebrew. That's, uh, uh, I think, it's a funny story. I've told it before, but Kelly came, and she was like, I know what that says, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He was going the wrong way and had the wrong words. Um, <laughs> Um, and she still forgives me for telling that story every year, um, uh, which is related to the sermon today, actually, for some reason, um, but um, about this relinquishing of debts, um, but uh, that Jesus comes to fulfill each of these things. There was an early Christian heresy called uh, Marcionite, and the church sort of after Marcion, the, the person who pronounced it, and the church continually struggles with this heresy, I think. If you know people who are like, you know, I'm not crazy about the God of the Old Testament, I really like the God of the New Testament, that's probably an exaggerated form of this heresy. There is one God of both Testaments. Like, there is not one God of the Old Testament, one God of the New Testament. And what Marcion wanted to do was to say, all this Old Testament stuff, a little too bodily, a little bit too uh, wrathful, a little bit too righteousness, we need to be freed from all that. We need to leave that behind. And what Christians have done ever since then have found ways to sort of move away from the Old Testament as the understanding of their faith. And what I think Jesus instructly tells us there at the start of the Sermon on the Mount is that he's not there to abolish any of it, but to fulfill it all. And it's for us, for us Christians, to be able to read as if they are fulfilled, not as if they are abolished. And this is, I think, a special kind of reading that is a challenge for us, but it doesn't mean we abandon the challenge of reading that way. Now, one of my favorite ways of thinking about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament is to say that the Old Testament is written in the expectation of Jesus, and the, the New Testament is written in the recollection. And so both Testaments sort of sit on equal footing when you phrase it that way. One is an expectation of what God is going to do, and the other is remembering what God has done to do. Memory, memory and hope play out in this differently than saying, you know, one is the full thing and the other is the half thing, maybe a mild form of that heresy. But we, at this moment, stand at the edge of the promised land, hearing from Moses. And as Christians, they stand, um, the people, the disciples at the edge of the mountain with Jesus, stand at the edge of this sort of new kingdom that Jesus is going to tell them about. And it's one that doesn't seem bound by land, but is bound by a different sort of ethic. It's not one bound by blood, but bound by the free choice of becoming a disciple, of being called into the Christian life. 
And so these things are, are outlines of the full thing to some degree. And so this morning we'll look at um, this passage from 15 about sort of God's economics and his sabbatical sort of justice for us. There's one quote that I, I use every year when we do get to this portion, when I was going to do 12 through 25, is that there's a common saying among Jews that we are religion of pots and pans, that God gets into our kitchen in different ways. The, the paraphrase I love of this quote from a Christian theologian is, um, any religion that doesn't tell you what to do with your pots, pans, or genitals is worthless. Um, in some sense, and this is when we talk about the idolatries of the world, is that oftentimes they don't really want to get into your life that much. It's like when the ancient Christians are going around, you dabbled in all the other religions. There was no religion that really came into your kitchen, that came into your life in that way. And so as Christians, we are, are not entirely a religion of pots and pans, but we are a religion of God sort of getting into all the places in our lives. It's not just an exterior thing, but one that is much more bound to us than that. And so it's worth thinking about the ways in which this is sort of lived out. Now, before we get too far into the sermon, we're going to be talking about sort of Sabbath economics. But the first thing we should know is that I am not an economist, which is funny, but also true. Um, and yet we have this sort of way in which God would like to order sort of an economy of debt. And it's not entirely the way that we order our economy. And so I'm going to say things and, and try to work this out in some ways. Um, but it's sort of a hard thing to do because we um, all think we're economists to some degree. I don't know what the answer is to this question. But, but I am not an economist of any degree. But one of the things I'd like to say before we get too far into this passage is that for, I think, I, I don't like doing like, well, both conservatives and liberals do the same thing. Um, but we have this way in which we think in American exceptionalist terms. That America is the exception to all the other nations. And so on the right, we look at this through um, perhaps militarism, perhaps healthcare, perhaps other things that, that we sort of have this. And it's interestingly enough that on the left, it's like that we should practice Sabbath economy as a nation. Um, and both sides sort of have these ways in which we want to go into American exceptionalism. This is the nation that is almost akin to the promised land. I think that is a drastic error. It is not a wise thing to do. And so, and, and you'll see this play out if you listen to any of our current discourse. A lot of people want to play this hand in that we are the Christian nation and we can do as such. Now, one of the things that I, I, I most of the time, people on the left and even on the right will appreciate when we talk about the Ten Commandments here at this church is I'll say something like that the Ten Commandments are for those rescued from Egypt. If you haven't been rescued from Egypt, living that type of lifestyle isn't going to make that much sense. It might be the ground of some sort of natural law, but really it's for people who have been brought out of the land of slavery. To know what it means to live that ethic is to be a person freed from slavery to sin and death and tyranny. On the other side of the coin, these Sabbath economic principles are for a people freed from Egypt. And so when people want to play these out in our society, the same rule holds. It would make sense for a people who have been liberated from sin and darkness 
from slavery, but it may not make as much sense to say everybody should live this way. Because God is trying to call out a particular people in the world to witness to the reign of what he's doing. That we are to be sort of built of that ethic and to be built of that place. And so one of my favorite theologians tells the story of that Christians need to realize what we say when we say we. And he talks about the Tonto principle. Now, Brian, you probably remember the Lone Ranger, although you only got one channel in Thermopolis, right? Um, was it on that one channel or no? Yeah, the Lone Ranger. And his, uh, his sidekick is... That one I don't know. Um, uh, I'll look that up later. Um, his, 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 uh, his, his friend is Tonto, right? And Tonto is Native American, I think at the time you would have said Indian. Um, Tonto is Indian and the Lone Ranger is a white guy. And there's a famous scene where the Lone Ranger and uh, Tonto are surrounded by a tribe of, of Native Americans, of Indians in 1950s language. And the Lone Ranger looks at Tonto and says, oh man, we're surrounded. And Tonto says to the Lone Ranger, what do you mean we, white man? What that means is what we are in the world is not the same as every other we. And so as Christians, we use we, Christians in America will use we about our nation, and I'm not sure that having some affinity for the nation state that you live in is entirely wrong. But when it gets down to it, and when we want to talk about what we are, what we believe, how we are called to be in the world, Christians need to recognize that difference. So when the world says, we are going to all go do this, perhaps it might be time for us to say, what do you mean we, pagan? You may not want to say that. But you'd have less friends than I do when we talk about this stuff. Um, But to know the Christian difference is there and that these things are called out for us in a different way. Now, I did look up... um, how much average debt, this is a passage about sort of relinquishing debts, as we've heard. The end of seven years, you must cancel debts. In the American um, household, does anybody have a guess on how much debt the average American household has? Ten bucks? That you're, you're counting in elk, too. Um, you're not actually counting in dollars. Um, 120,000. I think that would probably be correct. I don't know if household debt counts in the number I looked up. It's 8,000 uh, in consumer debt. So I don't think house, your house debt is in that. So 8,000 in consumer debt. Um, that's average, um, which means there's quite a bit a lot higher than that. The second is overall, it's $13.8 trillion, which to me is like not a number that makes any sense. Um, but it's a drastically high number. And what we've done in this country is built an economy that sort of is based on debt. And again, as not an economist, I don't know if that allows for some form of human flourishing or if it's a giant tampering of it. Don't know. But what I do know is this passage calls for after every seven years, you must cancel debts for the people freed from Egypt. And so a cycle of continued indebtedness, of continually never being able to make it in the world, of continually never being able to be free from this thing, is not possible in sort of the Sabbath economy that God wants for us. 
being caught in a pattern of continually deathfulness, I think God knows creates this era in which you can't escape. And not only that is that you can't escape, it's something that sort of feeds on itself. And what happens is because things become us versus them. Now, one of the things that I want to say is that this passage says fellow Israelite in the first half on forgiving debts five times. This is for your, um, and actually it says in the, in the Hebrew brother um, and should be translated brother and sister. And if you don't want to go full gender neutral, you translate it as fellow Israelite. So that's what we get. Hooray for English. Um, but five times it's the fellow Israelite that's supposed to be relieved of the debts. Now, I don't know, I don't think this means the Gentile, the outsider, just do whatever you want to them. But I do think it means within this particular space and in this particular world, these are the people who are not supposed to be bound into this economy. They're not supposed to be people continually suffering from indebtedness. They are to be your fellow Israelite. They're supposed to be together with you. And one of the points I do want to make as not an economist is that I think we have an inhumane economy. And what I mean by that is we don't know people who carry debt. Or for instance, Visa doesn't know me who carries the debt. They have a number for me, um, and that number is assigned, and it comes up randomly, and this, that, and the other. Whereas the Sabbath economy God is envisioning for Israel is one in which people know each other. This is where the translation, if it said five times, brothers and sisters... You're to do this for each other. You would know this is not, hey, if there are big banks that, I mean, $13.8 trillion I don't think exists anywhere, and yet that's what we have. And I don't, again, I don't know which would make a more justful economy, but what I do know is in this passage, there's this idea in which the people should know each other in their indebtedness, and in their indebtedness, they should be able to set each other free. We're in it together. And so when we have a um, multinational corporation like Visa, again, not the problem as I, as I see it necessarily, but we have this idea that we're not in it together. I'm so far down on their totem pole that when I call in and say, I'd like to dismute this charge, they're like, it's gone. I'm like, well, but I, I don't know if it's mine or not. And they're like, oh, we already took care of it. It's not worth our time to invest in um, Again, it's a weird thing that we live in this space in which there is this giant gap and that nobody knows these type of things. But the economy that God is visioning for the people when they come and land is one of being able to be in mutuality and reciprocity, of care for one another, of knowing one another. I, one of the things I like about this being every seven years forgiven when you think about it is it would inhibit the amount of debt you could probably incur. Now, I'm um, uh, as, as a pessimist or a skeptic, well, both, but, but you can pick which one applies to this, this category right now, which is that um, if I knew that all I could do is use the debt for six years, or let's say it's year five or four, I, as banker Israelite or friend Israelite, would know giving you X amount of money is not wise because it resets at some point. So there's another way of looking at this, which in a just or a human economy, you wouldn't be able to take on the amount of debt in which it would not make sense that it would be gone in seven years. 
So when I finished college and my student loans, I don't know why, but they put me automatically on the 20-year payback plan. Um, so almost three times as long as it would take to have been forgiven. Now, Sally Mae, who lived in my house for 10 years, um, she, uh, I hate that joke, but people always laugh. Um, uh, Sally Mae, who lived in my house for 10 years, she, um, uh, she thought it would take 20 years to pay off that debt, and it would keep me in this sort of, and I changed it to 10 years, thinking it's not that much money. But if, if they had to think through these things, what do you think it would do to the price of higher education? Well, in seven years, it has to, you know, you would readjust everything to a different line. And so there's, there's a sense in which a positive, optimistic person would say, isn't this great? This is an economy in which people are free in seven years. Pessimist skeptic, me, I'm like, isn't it great that things can actually cost in some sense reasonableness because you can't charge something that would be like, we expect you to pay this back in 400 years. Um, you can get on a payment plan. I think if you ever look at your visa summary, they're like, if you pay it back by the month, it'll take until like 2040. And you're like, that doesn't seem wise or good for an economy to exist that way. And yet that is the economy we've created. And I think the first thing to point out is first the we, we have to get our we correct so we don't apply this poorly. The second is that this is meant to be in a human sphere and we just don't live in that sphere today. So the challenge is, how do we reclaim that away from the scale, away from the numbers, and the away from the facelessness of it? And I believe that that's a serious challenge. I don't quite know how you do that. I mean, should churches set up their own banks? Now, again, pessimist skeptic, there's no way that would ever work because we, too, exist with greed within ourselves. There's so much so that in the book of Jeremiah, the people are sort of um, blamed for never actually having practiced this. It's almost like God made a mistake in saying seven years because after seven years, you're like, no, I can't do it, right? The Sabbath every seven days, I can do. These other things, the festivals, I'm good on, but every seven years, it becomes a challenge to reset this economy, to set people free. And so this is the way that sort of God envisions this people being able to be in the land of freeing each other, of, of releasing people from their debts. There's this, there's this instruction here that is to do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Do it without a grudging heart. Half of this passage, it seems like, is trying to call people into the joyousness of freeing people from their debts and to the joyousness of liberating people. And one of the things that I think is pivotal here is that God is a liberating God who has set people free from slavery. And so he calls his people to be a witness in a world who is a liberating people who sets people free from debts and, in the later part of the passage, indentured servitude. That God is one who's calling us into this pattern. Now the place that this shows up in the New Testament is first, and somebody pointed this out, that Deuteronomy is the greatest example of we love because he loved us. We set free because he set us free. One line that I was thinking about this week as we think about this economy is, uh, again, a, a um, guardrail, per se, is, is don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and the soul. 
that this idea in which if you know this God who sets you free from slavery to sin and death, and you say, I can't liberate somebody from this sort of debt, it's saying, don't be worried about the one who can just take your stuff. Worry about the one who can set you, your soul, in a different spot. And that's sort of the relation in which we are living here. But one of the places that I think is so deep for this is one prayer that we pray every week, that we would forgive our debts as we forgive. We would be forgiven as we forgive our debtors. The New Testament takes debt and places it into this relational space as well. And so it's not to say that I think forgiving people their monetary debt is an error, but it is to say that to hold on to the debt, the lack that they have from you in relational life, that's as I said, Kelly forgives me every year for telling that story, is to set people free. Another New Testament passage that I was thinking of this week is the parable of the unjust sort of steward who is forgiven much by his master because he can't pay. But then he goes out into somebody, and if you read, Jesus' money parables are insane because like he owes like 4,000 days wages. I guess this previous master was like Visa. And he goes out, he's forgiven, and he goes out and presses some guy for like two bucks and threatens to throw him in jail. And when the master hears about this, he throws him into jail for being ungrateful um, for what he had been forgiven. That's part of what happens with this type of economy, this economy that God's trying to bring us into, is that gratefulness goes all the way to the bottom of it. It comes out of gratitude. It comes, therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. It comes from a posture of openness. So much so that if we look at uh, the end of this passage with the animals, is that the firstborn, without defect, the one who's good, goes to God. It's this way of reminding ourselves that all of this is a gift. All of this comes freely from the one who rescues us. And that has a way, it's supposed to, I think, have a way of relativizing what else is out there. So and so has harmed me. I can never forgive them. This is, uh, I told Kelly last night, I don't know where this was going to fit in the sermon, but it's, it's a bit like, I was thinking of cancel culture. Like, um, you know, you're, you're canceled and you're done and you can't, and I think, well, it should have a limit according to this. It should be like seven years. Like, you know, you, uh, a baseball broadcaster said something he shouldn't have, not on the air, but it leaked anyways, and so he's canceled. But it should be like, well, after seven years, you can re-participate in the economy of your fruitfulness again, which, of course, we have such a uh, dark view of this. You, know, you must pay for the errors you've committed forever. May we be forgiven as we forgive others. We live in a world that's not only like this about money, not only like this about weird sort of harms to ourselves, but in a world that seems to have active disdain for forgiveness, I've, I've mentioned this before, almost everywhere. And it's for us to be a different people, to remember, as this says, that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord God redeemed you. To know the darkness you have been in and to be liberated from that, to leave behind that sort of endless system of debt, of owing, 
of being cast into this continual construction here. And so um, I'm trying to think if, if, there, if you got into enough debt, you would sell yourself into servitude, which is got going hand here. And the best part about this is after six years, the person is entitled to say, when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. The story of the prodigal son when he returns home and the fattened calf is slaughtered for this one slaughtered for this one who has sinned greatly while he was away because the one who is dead is now alive again. When somebody is in your servitude and the end of time is up, you're required to give freely from your flocks and to send them with a bottle of wine on the way. To be free is to be free indeed. And for us as a people who hear from Deuteronomy, and as a people who pray for our forgiveness as we forgive others, it's to be freefully gracious in the world. To be able to live a type of life that doesn't count pennies, that doesn't close its fists, that doesn't get hard-hearted, but to have graciousness in all things. It's a deep, deep challenge for us And yet we are called into the patterns of the liberating God who liberated us from slavery, from sin, and debt, from our lack and debt as we turn away from God, and to be brought into the freedom of the promised land, or in the language of the church, the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. God, you have called us into a new economy. an economy of freedom, of release. God, we, in a world that cycles with debt, are challenged to know what that means and how we, to our care for our fellow brother and sister in this world. And yet we pray that you would embolden our hearts to see in the work you've done for us your mighty release, the great freedom you have given us, the way in which you redeemed us from Egypt and our own slaveries to sin and death and destruction. And in light of that, we join in your liberating work, freeing each other, pronouncing forgiveness, And in that time, we are to open our hand from what we have, our flocks, our wine, and send the person on their way to begin again a life freed by you, which we imitate in our daily lives. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.